This is eSports Today with Rob Zachney and Andrew Gruen. Welcome to this edition of eSports Today for August 18th, 2015. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, alongside Andrew Gruen, here to fill you in on the latest news in eSports. On today's show, we have the latest from the group stages in the final StarCraft II season before BlizzCon. And later in the show, we'll also be previewing next weekend's ESL1 CSGO tournament in Cologne, where Cloud9 are hoping to break a curse. We'll also be taking a look at what happened in the League of Legends LCS semifinals as we look ahead toward the North American and European regional finals next weekend. But first, International 5 champions Evil Geniuses make a major roster move just one week after winning the biggest esports tournament in history. Those of you who listened to us last week will remember that we were roundly impressed by the play of all the Evil Geniuses players, especially Curtis AUI Ling. But in less than a week, Evil Geniuses have cut Ling from the squad in order to clear room for the return of Artur Artizi Babayev, who left EG earlier this year for Team Secret. Andrew, words are kind of failing me, actually. Uh, What the hell? I told you stuff blows up after the International every year. Like, this is what's so fun about Dota. You didn't believe me, but every year after the International, everything just goes completely insane, and it happened again this year. Uh, So this news kind of freaked everybody out immediately. Uh, All of esports Twitter blew up instantly when AUI2000 announced this uh, this really surprising news, and I think a lot of us reacted really negatively right away. You know, I was kind of incredulous right away. But I've honestly kind of given this way more thought than I'd like to admit, uh, and I'm coming to peace with it over the last week. You know, this, there was a ton of controversy, and everybody's angry at Evil Geniuses. And, you know, obviously it seems like a pretty blatantly terrible decision, right? So, like, I, I want to say it was even, um, you know, Burning, the legendary carry from, from, uh, from China, went on Twitter and it was basically like, what are you doing? AUI just won you guys the international. And, you know, he's referring to the fact that it was AUI who kind of pioneered the techies play that all of the Chinese teams were afraid of. You know, all of the uh, the other top, the five of the top six teams that EG was competing against were Chinese teams, and none of them knew what to do with AUI's techies. And it, it allowed EG to do whatever they wanted it to do uh, during all of these different matches. And so, yeah, obviously it seems like a terrible decision, why would you break up the best team in the world? And he's sort of like, in my gut, viscerally, I hate that this happened because I feel like it feeds into the esports narrative of raw talent being more important than any other consideration. And that kind of drives me nuts because I really prefer it when a team sticks together and grows together. And this kind of messes with that. And it kind of drives me nuts. Um, but what helped me make my peace with this was when I started thinking about this sort of like a Dota team would think of the picks and bands phase of a match. And it's really like, it's not just about getting RTZ on their team. It's also about making sure you never, ever have to play RTZ ever again. And that's a daunting prospect. It's like the only mid player right now who even holds a candle to Samael is RTZ. So just taking him out of the, out of the mix entirely is, is really kind of a boon to the entire organization. So after having a few days to kind of consider this, I hate that I love this move from EG. So to an extent, I will defer to your judgment because you follow the game a lot more closely than I do and you know more. But just the sports fan in me reacts kind of badly to this for for a lot of intangible reasons. And, And what worries me here is how divisive this seems to have been, not only within the community, but I kind of wonder where it leaves evil geniuses. Uh, their, their manager, Charlie Yang, uh, posted a message of support that could generously be described as tepid. He uh, went on Twitter and posted a twit longer <laughs> message that, like, 
you know, we're both writers, and so we're used to, like, scrutinizing language, and this is not, like, full-throated support. Like, the rest of the players decided that the above roster was what they wanted to go forward with. (laughs) Personally, I'm deeply affected by this, and I'm very sad to see Curtis go. And then he, he goes on to say, professionally, I trust the judgment of the captain and the other players. I will not make roster decisions on their behalf and will not force players to plan rosters they don't want to play on. And that is a troubling message. That like that 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 hints at like you know when you have someone basically try like clearly washing their hands of a team decision and being like look just don't look at me. Like this is like clearly like <laughs> clearly like address all comments to PPD. Uh, that that says to me that this is this is uncomfortable. This leaves the team in an uncomfortable place, and uh, you know I, I I just kind of wonder what the atmosphere is like there. So I think you're playing with fire here, and um, you know you get a better carry out of this deal, but Sumail and Fear had that covered at the international, whereas AUI was one of the most impressive supports of the entire tournament for the reasons you just said. It wasn't just what he was doing in the games, but it was also the dog that didn't bark, right? It was the things that he, the, the bands he forced out of people, uh, in, in, as well as some big plays that he made. So I kind of have this feeling that you're, you're addressing a weakness that I'm just not sure existed. And meanwhile, you've just blown a gaping hole in another part of your roster. So I guess I find the move a little tacky in terms of timing and strategically dubious. Yeah, you know, and I'm not I'm not entirely sure I I disagree. Um it really it kind of leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth after this, right? Like I have to find myself wondering, you know, what's the team attitude going to be like for evil geniuses when they come back and they have to play at another tournament and they have to maybe even play against AUI 2000, <laughs> you know, um, it, at the same time though, I fear is, you know, the, the, the joke with fear is always, you know, he's old man fear. He's not a young player by any stretch of the imagination. He's certainly not as young as uh Samael and Arteezy. And so, you know, I kind of like the idea of moving fear away from the carry positions, away from the sort of high-stress micromanagement intensive carry positions, and into the support position, which is, you know, generally it's what PPD plays, it's what Universe plays in in some respects. Um, And I kind of like the idea of having, you know, the old veteran, you know, play catcher in in a in a certain way, where he's 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 making higher level strategic decisions throughout the throughout the game rather than playing the twitch skill based positions, um, and 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 I feel like that might in the long run put them in a better position as a team and a, and as a cohesive unit. Well, you know, at the very least, though, as someone who you know loves sports in general and sports drama and. Uh, you know what can what can give an esport greater legitimacy than the fact that we finally identified its Be- uh, Bill Belichick? Uh, congratulations, PPD! <laughs> you are now you are now Dota's very own despicable winner. Uh, I, which I love it. You know, I I, I hope that you know in a, a year from now he looks like an absolute genius, uh, just a cold blooded uh, supervillain. But if it plays out, he will look he will look brilliant. You know, one of the things that that. I find myself worrying about for for evil on, on behalf of evil geniuses. I am worried about this aspect of it. You know, our our TZ just left your organization. You know, he just like kind of packed his bags and went to Team Seeker because he ha- he felt he had a better chance winning someplace else. And now he feels like he has a really good chance of winning with your organization. What happens when you lose? You know, what happens when you you give up your your greatest team in the world to to get this player who has just proven that he he's not exactly loyal. 
you know, maybe he'd be, he stayed on very good relationship terms with everybody at Evil Geniuses, but you know, you know, Artizia has kind of proven himself to be a little bit of a gun for hire. You know, and saying who who comes along with uh, with bigger money bags and maybe secures his loyalty there. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't have problems with players sort of being coldly mercenary. And actually, I think what what disturbs me more about it is just the fact that every other team on EG now knows that like you could get cut at the drop of a dime, and it doesn't even matter if the team's doing badly, right? It just kind of now it now 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 we understand the real state of play with an EG sort of seems to be like whether or not ppd finds you useful that particular week and i think over time that you know what i mean that that's kind of a stressful element to introduce and i'll be very interested to see how this plays out over the next year yeah absolutely and on a certain level like i i'm really glad that this sort of cold pragmatism has found its way to the north american esports scene because i really feel like that's actually been missing uh like you you've always talked about the old um like every year at worlds if you miss like a single cs on a korean team uh in league of legends you're cut on the plane ride back home you know it, it, it is cold you have to be the absolute best and there is no room for being even potentially second best and so you know, introducing some of that pragmatism into the North American scene, I think, is worthwhile. And honestly, with, you know, I think you can give AUI 2000 his proper due for inventing the techies play that may actually have won uh, Evil Geniuses, uh, the International Five. But how long was that really going to last? You know, is he, is that a style of play that's going to continue winning that tournament or is that was that just a weekend extravaganza where they happen to catch people off guard uh, you know i really don't think so i think that the chinese teams probably went home and figured out a counter for techies immediately uh, and so i you know that i just find myself relatively at peace with this and you know the guy did an amazing job uh, but i think that this really does kind of position eg as the best team going forward certainly in terms of raw talent so apart from Dota 2, this week we also had several groups play in the StarCraft 2 WCS and GSL. And, you know, there wasn't all that much to report. You know, this was a very standard week in StarCraft 2 where all of the people we expected to win won. You know, we had Flash, Innovation, Rain, and Hero advance to the round of 16 in the GSL Code S, surprising exactly nobody. Uh, but we did see some signs of life from Jadon at, at long last. You know, uh, Rob, do you think Jadong might actually be able to make a run in the WCS this year? I, I think Jadong's reputation is probably worth 50 supply in every game, but I'm not sure he's in shape to salvage this season. <laughs> I, I think he got a lot of help in his group from the fact that Showtime, a German Protoss who's been playing really well lately and was Jadong's opponent in the winner's match. He just seemed really intimidated by Jadong. And I'm not sure Jadong showed any, like, truly brilliant play this weekend. And it's been kind of a, you know, non-event of a year for him. And, and certainly it's a, it's a far cry from, like, 2013 when he was, when he, when he was always threatening at every tournament uh, to emerge the winner. So against Showtime, it was interesting because it was, it was a case where I really think Jadong didn't win the game himself. But this idea of Jadong absolutely won him a series. <laughs> uh, and that was partly because he, he was up against a, a less accomplished player who I think got a little bit intimidated. Uh, the casters were spending Showtime's play as, as exhibiting this incredible like patience and discipline. And I guess you can call it that, but at the same time, like it's really hard to distinguish at times patience versus hesitation, 
right? Like, what you know, is it is it discipline or is it insecurity? And the fact that like uh, Showtime was at his most patient right before he started to completely melt down in the group uh, suggests that maybe you know his virtues were actually proven to be vices by the end he he, he had a one game the, the the one game he took off jadong he'd actually won it pretty early uh he completely smoked jadong's army jadong was down to like a couple infestors and i think like three or four hydras and at that point like it's literally like at that point you or i could have won that match you know you just need to sort of like band select your army and tell them to move in and and the game is over but he, he backed off he backed off, and he had to have had a sense of how much he just killed of Jadong's army, and he still just he still, still faded back, and the game went on for like twenty more minutes, and went into a late game uh, situation where yeah, Showtime eventually won. He had the advantage, but man, did he make himself work hard for that victory, and that sets up this third game, where he decided he needed to cheese, and then things got really intensely weird. Yeah, that match was a ton of fun to watch, even though it was only, what, like eight minutes long? Um, eight minutes in heaven. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it turned into this really bizarre cheese game where they both cheese each other, where you have Jadong doing a Zergling rush at the same time that Showtime is going for this sneaky proxy attack inside of Jadong's base. Um and it turned out to be this match where you got to see something that you've never really seen before. And that's always a really fun way to watch StarCraft rather than watching, you know, the two sides play out the meta in the way that they believe that they're supposed to. Uh, and it was really satisfying. And it, it kind of, in in my view, showed us who had a better command of the game. And I feel like Jadong's victory in that really weird game was really well-deserved because this wasn't a case of a player just learning how the metagame is played and aping how other people have learned to play and using the lessons that you have learned from other players who are just as good as you or better. Um, you know, when, when the game gets weird like this one did, and we should post a link to the VODs in the, in the forums, the script kind of goes out the window and you really get to see who understands the game at a more fundamental level. And and in this case, it was clearly Jadong. I mean, Jadong was literally laughing at Showtime towards the end of this match when he realized just how clear it was he was going to win. That was one of my favorite moments in the weekend in the weekend StarCraft because Jadong is this really serious guy. Uh, he is one of the most intense pros in StarCraft, I think even by Korean standards, right? Like, a lot of Korean pro gamers are pretty serious to begin with and pretty reserved. Jadong just always looks like you called it his murder face before the show. And I, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's true. Like he's, he's sort of, he looks at his opponent, like just like, you know, just a slab of meat. He needs to cut up in the, in the fillets. Like that's, that's kind of how he approaches these games. And so to see him toward the end of this ridiculous game, this, this ridiculous, like, slap fight that it turned into uh and to see him just start to sort of like dance in his seat a little bit as for the first time in a long time right he's just playing with starcraft you know what i mean he's not just executing stuff he's already learned he's just playing around uh so it was it was it was a really cool moment and it was it was funny just to see such a bizarre game where you've got uh basically both players launching these uh really cheesy early exploitative ru rush attacks at them and they sort of meet in the middle and at that point it just it just all went st straight into chaos uh but at the same time like jadong jadong was let off the hook a little bit because showtime made some misreads yeah you have to wonder if that's why he was kind of smiling and laughing because 
you know, maybe he knew that Showtime's uh, Proxy 2 gate was supposed to beat his Zergling rush, and he got away with murder, so to speak, with the murder face. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I shouldn't, it shouldn't have won this. It's like when you wake up after, like, a bender, right, and you have no hangover, and that's, I think that's kind <laughs> of where, where Jadong was at that moment. Uh, so it was, it, it was really interesting. Uh, so that does it for all today's esports news. So it's time to talk about esports tomorrow. And this week we have ESL One Cologne, a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar Counter Strike major. To help bring us up to speed on the scene, we enlisted the aid of Team Liquid's Counter Strike expert Joe Wong. Joe, uh, thanks for joining us. Like a lot of people, Andrew and I are just getting on board the Counter-Strike Global Offensive bandwagon. For those of us who are sort of just tuning in for the first time this weekend at IEM Cologne, uh, what are the teams that we should be paying the closest attention to? Well, how sort of these majors work, uh, there's, there's kind of three every year. And how these work is, you know, they take the previous top eight of the last major and automatically invite them. So straight away, there's, you know, eight teams that you really want to pay attention to right there. And then they have eight more teams that sort of go through the qualifying stages and, you know, get through the sort of lower tier teams and, and make it through to the majors. So straight away, you know, you have those top eight teams like Fnatic, TSM, Envy, um, all, all those guys are, are kind of teams that you really expect to, to make the, the top, top eight again. Yeah, you know, before the show, I, t- I took a look at, um, you know, I get kind of obsessed with earnings and stats and previous placements and stuff like that. And, and you start taking a look at, you know, the teams who have performed recently and you take a look at Fnatic's previous year and they've won almost $500,000 just in the last eight months alone. Um, you know, is anybody touching them right now? Like, can anybody approach what they've been able to do over the last eight months? Well, you know, if you if you come to me sort of in the start of 2015, I'd say almost certainly not. Fnatic looked uh, unstoppable at, at the start of this year. But, you know, as the, as the months have gone on... Um, Teams have slowly started to figure out how they kind of play certain maps and, you know, what positions are, are really good for them. And a team like Team Solo Mid has really come come up the ranks and kind of what we call in the CSGO community anti-strated them, which is basically just study them so perfectly that they know exactly what a, a, a team are, are going to run um, on a specific map. Yeah, this is something that fascinates me as someone who follows MOBAs and RTS a a little more closely than first-person shooters, and that's sort of the mechanism by which teams sort of rise and fall, right? Because in StarCraft, you have people figure out, like, oh, this guy uses... He prefers these build orders, and he likes these compositions, and either a patch will take a guy out, or... You know that person will just end up getting figured out. Like the strategy sort of unraveled, and it's it's counted very effectively. In shooters, obviously, the same thing happens in, in some in some way. But for those of us who sort of uh, you know don't necessarily appreciate the nuance, what's you know what uh, what does like effective counter strategy look like in in CS:GO? Yeah, well, it, to put it in terms of say a MOBA, you know. It, when the international took place, a lot of people were talking about the drafting stages and how a team can, you know, outdraft another team and give them that kind of edge or advantage coming into the actual game. But in shooters, it's much more, or in CS:GO specifically, it's it's much more round based because you know every round it's almost like you're resetting and it's a whole 
you know, new game. The, it's a blank slate. And so when you're talking about an anti-strat, you're kind of guessing what a po- what positions specific players like to play. Because, you know, if, if you're in a mindset of a player, you don't, you don't take positions at random, you know. You, you've, you've been playing these positions for years or months or whatever, and it, it kind of becomes habitual. And so when, you, when a team looks at a replay, it's very clear that, okay, on the first uh, gun round, when they have full rifles or something like that, they always play this angle and this position. And, you know, we can learn specific grenade spots and, and deal a ton of damage to him before we even see him. So then a lot of this sort of begs the question of, you know, at what point do these younger, more emotional, more impressive, like, teams like Cloud9, sort of the up-and-coming North American team that everybody's kind of watching, where they've hit, like, second place, second place, second place, second place. You know, what what does a team like that need to do in order to be able to to anti-strat a a top-level team or to come in and actually be able to perform well in a long-term tournament and and come away with a first-place finish? Well, Cloud9 is a, is sort of the exact example of a team kind of rising up through just studying a team. Um, Cloud9 is a very interesting team because if you look through their history, they've sort of struggled to kind of put up the numbers against European teams. And if you look at their roster and, you know, through the, through the months and years, you think on paper that they have a decent chance, but they never really got to the level that they are today. And I think what really sparked off this kind of chain of, you know, second place finishes, which is, uh, although it's not a, a, a tournament win, it's still really, really good for, for a team of that caliber, is the fact that uh, their in-game leader, Sean Garris, has finally sort of taken the reins of the entire team and has managed to sort of mold that that the four other players and and you know instruct them to do what he wants to do and that's how they've gotten so successful. Yeah, we've run into this a couple of times again. Not to con- not to constantly compare this to MOBAs, but uh, you know when we watched the international, we saw these differing differing team styles. Where you know some teams were they they were this big collaboration where they were all whispering in each other's ear, encouraging each other, and and trying to you know work on the best strategy together. But then we watched a team like Evil Geniuses, where PPD is just in control. He tells them mm-hmm. exactly what to do, and his his players are his instruments. You know, on on which side does does Counter Strike generally fall in that regard? Is the team captain sort of just you know the 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 hive mind of his team or is it a, is it a big collaboration um it it really does differ from team to team you have teams like kind of you know TSM where you have a, a player like Kerrigan who who does focus on anti-stretting a lot and sort of informing his team okay this player plays at this specific angle so you know watch out for that and I'll do this and you can do that Whereas you have more, you know, relaxed teams like, say, Envious, who are more aggressive and just play a very loose style, or or Ninjas in Pajamas, who sort of pioneered this, uh, what we call a picking style, which is just, you know, running around the map and trying to challenge other other players to duels and trying to pick them and, and, and open up a, a map like that. Yeah, one of the things that I sort of, I feel like I've noticed when I've been watching Cloud9 rack up these second places of late is that their play definitely seems a little more uh, positional. I remember when they were playing at uh, Dreamhack Valencia versus Fnatic, I want to say it was. Um, they, they ended up like, it, it, was a, it was a cool series, but they, they, it was almost like they kind of put 
uh, if it was MMA, they kind of put Fnatic in like a submission hold, where <laughs> they were just playing this really defensive positional style and forcing Fnatic to sort of break into these kill zones, and they they couldn't do it. Uh, but when it came down to when they when they sort of faced TSM, TSM just seemed to be landing the skill shots uh, more mm-hmm. reliably, and it didn't seem like Cloud9's tactical acumen w- was really working. And I'm curious whether uh, Cloud9 sort of... You, you said they, they, they've been succeeding a lot with sort of anti-stratting. Is it the fact... Like, are they not able to prepare effectively for everyone they're going to face in a tournament that's keeping that's keeping them down? Or are they just sort of hitting a point where eventually it's going to come down to who has the best you know, snapshot players uh, in the game is, you know, is a kind of raw mechanical talent that's proving to be their limitation when it comes to a final. Right. Yeah. I, that's something really interesting because, you know, we, with all this talk of anti-stratting and, and kind of countering an enemy, that's all good and fine. Um, and, you know, that gives you that edge. But in the end of the day, if, you know, you can't hit that headshot or you can't, spray down that guy coming through um, that angle, you're still going to lose the game. And in that sense, you know, maybe Cloud9 still has a little ways to go in kind of securing that edge. But through the the sort of three second place finishes they've secured, they've proven that they can prepare for for more than one team, basically. They just need, I guess, a little more time and, and just to get a little bit better at kind of absorbing a team's strategies and and sort of um, figuring them figuring them out a little faster, I guess. There's something else I wanted to ask about is just you know the, it's that old question, right? What's what's the deal with NA? Uh, is there a? I know that Cloud Nine right now is sort of the the North American hope. They, they've had a lot of success. I, I'm curious why there's this difference in achievement levels between North American organizations and uh, European organizations. Because Counter Strike's been popular for years and years and years mm-hmm. on both sides of the Atlantic, but in CS:GO certainly it just seems like Europe has this embarrassment of riches and North America's struggling to get on even footing. Yeah, it's it's a tough question to fully address and and fully answer um but one sort of i guess one possible answer is kind of the third-party matchmaking system esea which a lot of north america uses instead of the official valve matchmaking um and what that does is it's a subscription-based service and it provides a higher quality of server and it sort of promises that your matches will be against a higher sort of tier of player, basically. But what that ends up promoting is a very stat-based kind of mentality within North America. And you see you see it happen a lot in sort of the middle-tier um, teams that are trying to break through into the, the pro scene. A lot of them are just kind of focused on aim rather than, you know, as, we're, as we've talked about, sort of strategy and, and tactics. And what that what that ends up making is five players who are really good aimers and, and can, you know, given the chance, out-aim or, or destroy a team that way. But when they, when they come up against a team that has that aim, but also another layer of strategy like TSM, like Virtus Pro, um, they just get shut down in a brick wall, which is why you see a lot of those... Uh, results where an NA team finally makes it to Europe, finally qualifies for an event, but then they get 16-1 or, you know, 
they just get utterly shut down. And that's just because they don't have that that in-game leader. And it's really it's a really hard question to, to answer how you can foster that in-game leader sensibility because it's a role that no one sees as, you know, uh, glorifying. It, it, you, there's, no, there's no glory in being kind of the in-game leader um, support player kind of thing. So to kind of, you know, bring this back around to, you know, the big tournament coming up this week in Cologne, um, you know, can you kind of put this in context with the rest of uh, of the Counter-Strike scene? You know, is there is there anything that you can compare this to that helps us get a, get a sense of, you know, what this tournament means to the scene? Sure. So in, in the CSGO community, you know, we compare ourselves to Dota 2 a lot as well because you know we're both under they're both under Valve as a as the developer and so a lot of the community kind of feels a little bit shunned in that sense because you know as the international just finished with 18 million dollars as their prize pool we're sort of having our quote-unquote big tournament with 250,000 <laughs> so we kind of feel, you know, there's there's definitely some tension between um, us and the developers and kind of wanting more, especially since in terms of viewership numbers and, and, you know, players, we're relatively equal to Dota 2 or at least competitive. Um, so in, in that sense, we're always sort of yearning for more, for more prize pools for our tournaments. But in, in the context of, say, the international um our system is kind of uh, um, the major system, kind of like in tennis. Um, so we have kind of these big landmark uh, 250K tournaments across the year. We have three right now, um, with this one being the second. And uh, sort of the winner of, of each major is kind of seen as the dominant team for a good period. Um, and, and, you know that kind of carries on for for a good couple of months. Yeah, so we had, uh, right after the International came out, somebody did an interview, I can't remember exactly, it might have been the Score Esports, uh, did an interview with Valve saying, you know, when is this, when is the International coming uh, to Counter-Strike Global Offensive? Uh, and, and his response was basically to say, like, we're not, we don't really have plans for that. Uh, we yeah. really value taking a different approach to our different products so that we can see what's working and what's not working. You know, that had to be a pretty upsetting response to the community. What, did, what was the kind of the reply to that uh, for everybody uh, who plays Counter-Strike? It, it was just kind of, it was disappointing just because of the fact that, you know, we don't really have that developer relationship with with anybody in CS:GO at the moment so just hearing you know snippets of kind of like whispers of of developers or or organizers at Valve just kind of trying to pick up what's 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 in their minds for CS:GO and it's just sometimes it's it's a bit disheartening to hear that oh you know we're not we don't have any plans to expand this this scene that that kind of grew on its own basically and you know it, it it's okay for us but we just kind of hope that uh eventually we're, we're going to grow into something a bit more yeah i think there, there was this you know a moment probably only a few months ago where the rest of the world kind of 
woke up to how big Counter-Strike still was. I think a lot of people still thought of it as something from, you know, 2006 or 2007. And then, right. you know, you, yeah. you turn on Steam one day, you say, I'll play a round of Counter-Strike. And you realize that 9, 10 million people are playing Counter-Strike this month. Uh, and, it, and it's one of the biggest games in the world. And that so to hear that kind of silence from, from the developer has to be disheartening. Yeah, I, I, and I think that, you know, esports kind of lacked that big fps you know we had kind of quake we had cs and those kind of sort of died down in in the mid 2000s and i think csgo really fills that void of that kind of visceral action of you know you can turn it on and you can just see even if you don't you know necessarily understand the strategy or whatever you can see that some guy's aiming a gun at another guy's head and he clicked it really really fast (laughs) Well, I think as someone who follows uh, StarCraft pretty religiously, I think you're all complaining about nothing. <laughs> uh, no. But uh, yeah, every, I think everyone who fo- who deals with Valve on any level is used to the sound of deafening silence. Uh, so <laughs> jo- join the club. Yeah. Uh, Team Fortress Two says hi. <laughs> uh, so. ESL One Cologne starts on Thursday, the 20th of August. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining us and catching us up on what's been happening in Counter-Strike Global Offensive. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's all we have for this week's show. Looking ahead at the coming week in esports, we'll be watching more of the group stages in the StarCraft II WCS, which will be on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And this week on August 23rd, we'll have a huge day of League of Legends as the European Grand Finals takes place in Stockholm, Sweden, as Origin takes on Fnatic at 11 a.m. Eastern. Then later in the day at 3 p.m., we'll have the North American Finals taking place at Madison Square Garden. And honestly, the North American Finals are kind of must-watch. This is the first time CounterLogic Gaming have made it to the finals against their longtime rival, Team Solo Mid. This is kind of a Chicago Bears, Green Bay Packers kind of thing, in that it's a, it's a major and historic rivalry that goes back to the start of the league, and which has been pretty lopsided in favor of one team. CLG simply doesn't do well in the playoffs, and they've always sort of been an also-ran next to Team Solo Mid. So this is huge for them. And if they win against Solo Mid, this entire year will have been a success for them. And then if you haven't had enough league, you can catch the VODs of the LPL finals from the previous night between Xiao Gu and LGD Gaming. We'll be discussing these tournaments on next week's show on August 25th, but that's all we have time for on this edition of Esports Today, an Idle Thumbs Network podcast produced by Michael Hermes. You can learn more about the show and discuss esports with us in the Idle Thumbs community at our website, esports.today. We'd love to hear your feedback and field questions for an upcoming listener mail segment, so come find us at esports.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at ES2D Podcast. We'll be back next week to discuss the past, present, and future of esports. For Andrew Gruen, this is Rob Zachney, signing off. <laughs>